when we turn to the words of Jesus. Some are easy to hear and some are hard. And today's teaching from Jesus are some of his hardest words. One, just in terms of understanding what it is that he's saying. And two, in thinking about what was he calling his followers to do? What is he calling us to do? And how is he calling us to respond to these words? So we're in the middle of a series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 through 7. These teachings of Jesus about what life looks like in the kingdom of God. What it looks like to follow King Jesus. He's talked about the blessings that come and how God tends to bless those who are unexpected. But also an invitation to a different kind of life. It's words about what it looks like for us to be salt and light. To demonstrate the love of God to the world around us. He's talked about his role as fulfilling the law. As he is the one who all of the scripture is pointed to. He's the one who interprets what God has said. And then we've been looking at for the past few weeks these number of these kind of back and forth where Jesus says something like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And it's looking at how he takes what God gave to the people of Israel, to his own people, what we call the Old Testament, and how then he takes that and then how he deepens it and maybe even makes it a little more clear. He talked about what it looks like when we often think of murder as simply physically killing someone. And he says it's something much more than that. It's about what's going on in our heart and the words we use. That adultery goes beyond a physical act, but it's about what's going on in the hearts of people and our dehumanization and our objectification of people. Now, Jesus is really calling us to something much deeper in the way that it's the actions of our heart and the thoughts and what's going on in there and not just our outward actions. And so I want to jump in right now where we are. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And so again, he uses this language of you have heard it said, and meaning they've heard it said, but also they've probably read it. But again, said more likely than read, because in the ancient days, very few of the people could actually had scriptures. I mean, we all have multiple Bibles on our shelves and on our coffee tables. We have them on our phones and on our devices. In the ancient times, there was maybe a scroll in the local synagogue. And so most of the people would have heard the scripture read to them. And they've heard it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And that actually shows up three different times in the Old Testament. Three different times this phrase comes up, sometimes known as the lex talionis, the law of the talon or the law of the tooth, the law of retribution. And to be honest, it sounds kind of harsh, Josh. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth sounds kind of brutal and old fashioned. But one of the things we need to get to is the point of understanding how the Old Testament laws worked. There's a scholar named Drew Johnson who's been very helpful to me in thinking about the way that laws work. And one of the ways that we think of law as something you break or you keep. You obey, you disobey. But when the Old Testament spoke about the laws, it wasn't so much about breaking them, but about tending or keeping the laws. The metaphors for disobedience are not, listen, are not listening or rejecting. So Deuteronomy 4, chapter 6, it says, Observe them, in other words, the laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Notice that kind of language that when 
God is speaking to the people about obeying the laws. He doesn't say they're obedient people, people or they're law-abiding citizens, but they're wise in their understanding. And so what Drew Johnson goes on, he says, the biblical authors portrayed lawfulness neither as rule-following nor as law-breaking, but rather as formative. Ultimately, Israel must become the kind of people who exhibited principled justice as concrete examples of living together under God's kingship. In other words, following the law wasn't just about disobedience. It was a way, following the laws, the rules of God were a way to form people's hearts. And one of the things, if you, how many of you have read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Or at least try to. You know, we make, we make, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of rules and it feels kind of like as we're reading it, on the one hand, it feels like a bunch of rules, but you also notice there's a bunch of stories in there. How many of you have ever read through like a local penal code? I mean, a, law, a law book. Okay, I'm going to give a different example. So a couple weeks ago, at one of the honest softball games, there was a girl leading, leading off their base and the umpire called her out. She was just standing there. And there was a debated discussion back and forth between the coaches and the umpires. I'm not coaching anymore, but there was a discussion back and forth between about what exactly had happened. So and he, the umpire was referring to something called the look-back rule. And so I was curious about this. So after I got home, I, I pulled up the rule book for the U.S. Softball Association online. It's about 240 pages long. And the, the description of the look-back rule was, was about a half page, and there was quite a bit there. And so I was curious as I was thinking about these things that Drew Johnson had said about the way ancient laws work and the way modern laws worked. So the U.S. Softball rule book has about 78,000 words in it. I didn't count them. I used a computer program to do that in case you're wondering. About 78,000 words. Now, to give you an idea of how many words 78,000 is, that is more than the combined number of words in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So just to play a game of softball took all those rules because it, it works out every single situation in all the different ways and what happens when the batter does this and what kind of equipment they can run, all these different rules. Now imagine that fewer words than that were given to the people of Israel about the way to live. And what I think that suggests is we think of the books of the law the Torah, these guides, is spelling out every single situation as a detailed situation. If you can't describe a softball game in less words than that, what makes us think that that number of words can describe every single situation in life? So what Drew Johnson gets at is the laws weren't necessarily trying to cover every single situation, nor are they statutory, nor are they trying to describe each and every possible situation like the way we think of modern laws. But they're doing something different. They're inviting introspection and reasoning. They're inviting and they're giving examples. It's more like case law. It's more an example of like, here's these kind of situations and here's the way they live out and we want you to think about them. They're oftentimes grouped together in different ways and they're formatted in different ways to trying to make us think. And so he gives an example of, in Leviticus 18, it talks about our sexual relations with people. And he gives out, and it says, you shall not have sexual relations with your close relatives. And then, so for the people who are wondering, well, what's a close relative? He, he, he lists, the, the book of Leviticus lists some of those. 
But if you were to go to that list, for example, it doesn't list grandmothers. And so you think, well, I think grandmother's probably a close relative, right? The point being that Johnson is making is that it's not covering every single situation. But instead, what God is inviting us to do is, is he gives these rules and these ways of living. He's inviting us to think and to consider and to ponder what he's doing. And that those rules aren't simply a long list of things to follow, but they're guides, they're ways to shape and form our hearts into the proper kind of living. So that as we read these stories, we get to the point we say, oh, well, that probably includes these people too. And, and that's why these laws are put together. And so we come to now this law of retribution, the lex talionis, the eye for eye. I want to look at briefly at one of those from Exodus 21. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn the Exodus 21. I'm going to be reading from verse 22 to 27. And so, again, it takes place kind of this narrative structure. And so it says this, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whether the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And so we kind of hear that language there. Burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And so we're reading this and we're thinking, oh, whatever happens to one person, you do the exact same to the other person, right? Somebody get, takes out an eye, you take out their eye. Somebody loses a tooth, you take out their tooth. Somebody gets burned, you burn that person. And that would, might be what we think. But if we continue reading, listen to this. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye, oh, there's that word again, in the eye, and destroys it, we might think what? Gets their eye taken out, right? But that's not what it says. He must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out the tooth, we the tooth for tooth, right? Well, no. This must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. So immediately we think, wait a minute. It says right there, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But the description is, if I own a person, if I own a slave and I do something, I injure them in some way and knock out their eye, it doesn't mean that my eye gets taken out. Instead, what happens? This person, I have to release this person from their slavery. They no longer provide income. All these things, they're free to go and I'm losing out on this. So when we begin to look at the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, we recognize it's not a simple matter of mapping over word for word and saying, well, somebody takes out an eye, you take out their eye. There is a sense in what the law is doing. It's about guidelines. And part of what it's doing is limiting vengeance because human nature is what? If somebody hits you, you hit them back harder, right? When something happens, that human tendency is to go for more and more. And so in some sense, what the law does here, or I should say maybe the guideline, the rule, the, the wisdom here, is to limit that. It's to say, if you do something, if somebody does something, you don't go and do something even far worse because that's the typical human response. But what it's doing is placing a limit on it. But we also recognize that even the limits on it have some questions about it. And so the rabbis often had discussions about those things because if the idea behind the limit was to equal things out, 
What happens if I'm a one-eyed man and I put out a two-eyed, you know, and I accidentally put out the eye of a person who has two eyes? Well, do they take out my other, my one good eye? Well, because if that happens, it's not really equal anymore, is it? Because now he has one eye and I'm blind. And so there were all these questions about what's going on, but part of the question going on is, is this rule even simply teaching that whatever's done to us is automatically done to the other person? And what I think, just from the plain reading of it here, is that's not what it's teaching. It's somehow limiting, but the idea is it's trying to limit the vengeance that's going on. Because we all know there's this cycle that goes on. A cycle that goes on because I hit somebody, they hit me back, I hit them back, and we can look at nations throughout history where a nation attacks another nation and then later on they go back and it goes back and forth or feuds that go on between families or between individuals. And maybe you've experienced this, maybe you've seen this in your life where you have maybe a relative, a, two, two uncles who don't get along. That every time that there's a Christmas or a Thanksgiving event, they're sitting at separate tables and they don't talk to each other. And sometimes the question is, well, what happened? And so it's like, I don't know. It happened so long ago, nobody remembers. But there was an act of one did something to the other and the other one did something back and the feud went back and forth and back and forth and the families all got involved and eventually it was the Hatfields and McCoys and they just lasted for generations, but nobody knows what was going on. In part, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth is to stop that cycle of vengeance. To stop that. And so when Jesus quotes that and says, you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It seems that maybe what was happening was the people who were hearing it were initially thinking, well, somebody puts out my eye, I'm going to put their eye out too. And what Jesus is inviting them to is to say, I want you to reflect on that a little bit because that's not really what God was getting at. That it was limiting these things. And so maybe some people were saying, that's a command. The law says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, so that's what I have to do. And I think what Jesus is getting at, and we'll see this a little bit later, is no, what, Jesus, what the law of Moses was getting at was limiting it. He's inviting us as his followers to think of how we respond when we're victims. What happens when somebody does something to us? What's our natural response? And part of what Jesus wants to do is to begin to shape our hearts so that we respond naturally and normally. And so he gives four examples. And these four examples have a long and torturous history of understanding about what exactly they mean. And I'm still wrestling, and that's why I say it's hard, because how do we apply these things? Do they apply to us as individuals? Do they apply to us as groups? Do they apply to us as nations? How does it affect the role of violence in that? And so we're going to touch on a little bit of that, but please know this is there's a lot that goes on here. So we're going to look at those verses and kind of these four examples and come back to them and try and draw a picture of what Jesus is getting at. So Jesus said, well, you've heard it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person or do not resist anyone by evil means. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So what's Jesus doing here? What I think Jesus is doing is, he's pointed back to the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and he says, 
That has pointed to the idea of don't go over and above. Don't retaliate more be, be, than the original injury. But I think then what Jesus says is, don't retaliate at all. But instead, respond out of grace. And what he's inviting us to is this reformation of our heart. Kind of like last week, we looked at this idea of not swearing or taking an oath. But instead, he wants us to simply say, you let our yes be yes and our no be no. And I think maybe in part, he's using some hyperbole, some exaggeration. One of his earlier sayings said, well, if, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And I don't think Jesus meant that literally. But he was using it as an extreme example. And I think we might see this in part as hyperbole, but not entirely. And so what's he going? One of the things I think he's doing is he's not giving us a new set of laws. Jesus isn't trying to create, again, another statutory like, if, you're done, if, if this happens, then do this. But instead, what he's doing is he wants to create a picture of the kind of people he wants us to be. He's inviting us to break the cycle of retaliation. And we see it far too often. It happens in the streets. How many times do you read in the newspaper about a gang shooting, maybe? And what was the origin of the gang shooting? One gang shot at the other, so what happens? That gang turns around and shoots back. And so Jesus is inviting about the law of retaliation. Someone's driving on the highway and a person cuts you off. What do you do? You zip around and cut them out, right? I mean, there's this back and forth that goes on. And so Jesus is inviting us to break the retaliation. But on the one hand, the struggle is this feels like injustice. I mean, God is steeped in justice. One thing. I mean, it doesn't seem like justice if like somebody hits me and then I get hit again. It doesn't feel like justice, does it? But what Jesus is inviting us to is to break this cycle. And the usual way was to do return harm for harm. That was the usual way to do it. And so he, he uses these pictures. And so one is the slapped. You know, if somebody hits you on the right cheek. And he's envisioning, most scholars think, kind of the backhanded slap of somebody. So if I walk up to a person and in the times of Jesus and I back it, one, it's an insulting thing. It's, it takes away the dignity of the person. It's not, and so then I get hit in the right cheek, and then there's this invitation to turn the other cheek. And what Jesus, I think, is getting at is we're not returning harm for harm. We're not striking back. Instead, we're, we're asking and we're responding in a gracious way. And then he goes on when he talks about If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And so he's picturing, so in, in the biblical times, they had like a shirt, just kind of like not a t-shirt, but an undershirt they wear. And then there was a coat or a robe that they would wear over it. And the typical Jewish person only owned one coat or robe. And that coat or robe was also their blanket at night. And so you can imagine now in a courthouse, and there's this person who sues and it says, well, you know, I'm suing you for your shirt. It's like, oh, here, here's my shirt. Here's my coat as well. Well, if you take your shirt and your coat off and give it to the person, what are you left wearing? Nothing. Not much of anything, are we? And so there's this sense of where he's turning and he's saying, I'm not going to do just what the law requires, but I'm going to do more. 
and I'm going to go beyond. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And he's picturing a Roman soldier. And Roman soldiers had this ability to compel a local person to carry their pack for one mile. You say, well, you carry it one mile. And then you say, well, I'm going to take it a little farther for you there. And he's saying, give to these people. Go beyond what it requires and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In other words, don't just give only to those who have a claim on you, to your family, but to those who owe you a favor. But Jesus invites us into a way of the kingdom. And so what he's getting at is a picture of going beyond. Where our first instinct as a kingdom person is not to return harm for harm. I think that's what he's getting at. I'm not sure it's necessarily we're supposed to literally say, well, somebody slaps us, then we just turn and say, okay, take, take, your, take another shot at me. Instead, what he's getting at is say, our first response is not to return harm for harm. Because if we went strictly with an eye for eye, tooth for tooth, somebody slaps me, what, what should I do? We'll slap them back. Jesus is saying, no, don't return harm for harm. Do more than you're required to help others. You know, don't just stop at what it is. And so we use our wisdom and do it. And, he's, and in part what Jesus is doing is he's inviting us to respond and surprising and subversive ways because you can imagine someone walks up and they slap the person and, and it's this sign of indignance it's this insult to the person and so the expectation is what the other person's going to be insulted and somehow respond now imagine you slap this other person and they say okay and you stop and you turn and in part what you're doing is inviting that other person to see your dignity it might make them wonder well, what do I do now? Because you're expecting, well, I slap somebody and they're going to hit me back and then we're going to get in a good old fight. And they do nothing. And so you're wondering and so you maybe, they maybe wake up and see what they're doing. And so we're in this situation of letting them have the coat. And now again, we go back to the court scene and the person sues you and they're like, take your shirt. It's like, oh, here, I have my coat too. And in part, you're what? Demonstrating the greed of the other person. You're calling them out. Our normal reaction is to cling to what we're asked for. And this is a picture of love that asks for how we can help. You know, the carrying of the pack, of going that extra distance, calls out the injustice. When some Roman soldier comes up and says, oh, carry my pack for a mile. And there's this sense of injustice going on, but the person who goes that extra mile calls out the injustice. And so some of this teaching, particularly this section and what we're going to look at next week, was crucial teaching that Martin Luther King Jr. understood and was a basis, a foundation for much of that went on in the civil rights movement. And so one of the things that people often did was, and we read about it, we've been, went on this tour, my family went on a tour of the, the South, and that's one of the things I mentioned in our newsletter I've been writing about, but they would gather and they would train, and one of the things they trained to do before they went into places was they trained how to not respond with violence. This wasn't something that just came naturally. So when young women and young men would sit at a coffee counter that said whites only, knowing that people were going to spit on them, attack them, call them names, and hit them, when they would sit on places and buses, when they would refuse to do things, they knew they were going to be responded to with violence. They knew when they gathered in the streets of Birmingham that Bull Connor would sick the dogs and the fire hoses on them. And the natural human response, I can only imagine if I were to sit 
at a lunch counter and somebody started spitting on me and hitting me, what would be the natural human response? To hit back. But they knew the way of Jesus, and they trained, and they began to say, we're going to respond in a different way. We're going to refuse to respond harm for harm, violence for violence. And one of the things that that did was it demonstrated their dignity as people. But it also called attention because as the world watched, as the world watched these women and men and children march, and the police putting dogs on them and attacking them with fire hoses and beating them with billy clubs and them not responding. What did that do? That elevated even more the injustice which was being done to them. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying in part when we respond in a different way, when we respond in a kingdom way, it calls out not only who we're following, but it elevates the injustice that's being done. And these are movements of love and forgiveness rather than asserting our right to revenge. There are all kinds of bigger conversations on nonviolence and what the limits are to this. But I want to share a quote from Dallas Willard, which I think captures kind of well what he's saying. He says, and Willard says, basically, when we've understood life in the kingdom, he says, when we are personally injured, our world does not suddenly become our injury. In other words, when we understand what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, when we're personally injured, we realize that our life is much more than that individual thing. He goes on, he says, we have a larger view of our life and place in God's world. We see God. We see ourselves in his hands. And we see our injurer as more than that one who has imposed on us or hurt us. We recognize his humanity, his pitiful limitations, which are shared with us, and we also see him under God. This vision and the grace that comes with it enables the prayer, Father, forgive them, for they do not really understand what they are doing. And so what Willard is basically saying is when we see ourselves as people in the kingdom of God, when we see ourselves under God's hand, when we see ourselves as loved by God and protected by God and held by God, then we don't have to see our injury as the end of everything. But instead, we still see ourselves in God. And we also don't have to see the one who's attacked us as simply our enemy. But again, we see them also as a person created in the image of God. So I think this is what Jesus is doing here. I don't think Jesus is laying out a specific set of rules that says, oh, somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn the left cheek to him. Somebody sues you, give them their shirt, because you, then you ask, well, what if they sue me for my car? Do I have to give them my motorcycle as well? How does that work? What if they punch me first in the left cheek? Do I have to turn the right cheek? Then? What, what if they hit me in the gut? Do I turn around and make them hit the... If they make me walk one and a half miles, do I just have to walk an extra half mile or do I have to walk three now? But Jesus is instead getting at what kind of people are we becoming? How is our heart being shaped? Because what Jesus is inviting us to say is what kind of heart do we have to have? What kind of person do we have to become? So that's our normal and natural response. My normal and natural response is where that's our initial response is to respond, not by reversing, 
Because it's not simply a like, oh, we get hit, we have to stop and think, okay, what did Jesus tell me to do? I have to think about this. Oh, left or right. But instead, like, where our normal and natural response is not to return harm for harm. Where our normal and natural response is to go beyond what is asked. Where our normal and natural response, where the thing that happens first of all. Because I think sometimes we do that. We say, oh, you know, somebody does something to us and we lash back out and say, oh, that's not really who I am. And what Willard says in so many places, no, that's exactly who you are. However you respond in the instant of the moment is what's in our heart. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to rewire. He wants to renovate. He wants to recreate a heart in us so that our response to violence against us, that our response to injustice to us is to subvert. Our response to that is not to respond harm for harm, but to respond with acts of grace. And like those women and men and children who were in the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee along with Martin Luther King Jr. had to train and to work and to do this, it doesn't come naturally. I know that my simply sharing this in a message on Sunday morning isn't going to cause you to walk out the door and all of a sudden be totally changed and say, hey, somebody hurt me, I'm not going to hurt them back. It takes time and training. It takes, most of all, the work of God's Spirit in our hearts rewiring it. But it begins here with the vision of Jesus. It begins to say, do we have that vision for ourselves where we have the kind of heart that that's the kind of people we're going to become? And I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's holding up a picture and say, this is who I want my kingdom people to look like. This is what I want them to be like. I want them to be the kind of people who don't immediately return harm for harm, who seek grace and to ask ourselves, Am I being the kind of person that Jesus is showing with the illustra these illustrations? So Jesus isn't simply giving a new set of laws to us, but what he's giving is pictures. This is a picture of life in the kingdom of God. This is a picture when our hearts have been reshaped by the one who is the king. And so I would invite you to just reflect on these words. A handful of verses. Chapter 38 through, you know, 5, 38 through 42. Four examples, four illustrations. Just spend time reflecting on them and thinking, what does this look like in my life? Ask God to show you, what does this look like? How should I respond in those situations where harm has come to me? Where someone has insulted me? Where someone has taken something from me? Where someone is requiring something from me? And ask, what is the response of grace? What is the response of love? What is the kingdom response that Jesus is calling us to? And then ask God to begin to shape your heart to be that kind of person. To be the kind of person that Jesus is inviting us to be. That's his invitation to us. To be kingdom people. To be people who don't respond with harm for harm, but who instead respond with grace and with love. Amen.